Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the Harvest Lakeshore podcast. Harvest Lakeshore is a redeemed family who loves God and loves others. For more info about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Today's reading comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to ask you a question. Kind of imagine in your minds with me, if you would, for just a moment, if you knew that you were going to have an audience this coming week with the governor of our state. Now, let's sort of let politics aside and not whether you voted for her or against her, but if you just knew you were going to have an audience with the governor of our state this coming week and she wanted to hear from you what your thoughts were about the needs of the citizens of our state, you were going to have that audience with the governor an opportunity to talk about what you see are the needs of the citizens of our state. Here's the question. Would you think ahead of time about what you were going to say? Would you think ahead of time about that? Or let's kind of maybe bring it a little closer to home. Let's say that um, uh, this coming week you are going to have an audience with the, the mayor of the community that you live in. Or maybe your community doesn't have a mayor, maybe they have a city manager or something else that is sort of the the person, the man or the woman that's kind of in charge of the community. And you just knew that this coming week you were going to have an audience uh, with that city manager, with that mayor of your community. And you're going to have a chance to kind of discuss with them a little bit about how you see the community and what you think the needs are of the people in the community, what your needs are, what your neighbor's needs are, those kind of things. Again, the question is, would you think ahead of time about what it is that you are going to say to that person. Or maybe we can make it even more personal. Let's say that this coming week you are going to have an audience with the superintendent of the public school system where your children go to school. Or maybe your kids are homeschooled and they don't go to that school system, but nonetheless, they're still the superintendent in your community and you care about the children in your community. So if you knew that you were going to have that private audience this week, with the superintendent of the public school system and the community in which you live, again, the question is, would you think ahead of time about what it is that you would say to that person? Would you think about that? You know, I think that most of us probably would. 
Because I think most of us would understand that whether it's the governor of our state or the mayor of our, of our city or whether it's the superintendent of our public schools, I think most of us would recognize that these are people of influence in our community. These are people that can make a difference. So if we knew we were going to have that audience with them, we'd probably think ahead of time at least a little bit about what it is that we were going to say. Well, think with me about this. The amazing reality is we have a private audience every single day with someone who is far more prominent, far more important, far more influential than any governor of any state, than any mayor of any community or superintendent of any school system. Every single day, we have a private audience with God. And each day, we get the chance to speak to God about our concerns, about concerns that we might have for our own life, about concerns that, that we might have for the people around us and nearby us, the people that are close to us and important to us. And again, the question is this, do we ever pause to think about what it is that we're going to say? And we'd probably think that way if we're going to talk to the governor. We'd probably take a little time to do that if we're going to talk to a mayor or a superintendent. But do we ever think that way about God? I mean, just sort of think for a moment about the people that are sitting near you this morning. When you pray for those people, when we pray for each other, what do we pray for? What should we pray for? Or maybe we could simply ask the question, how should we pray? How are we praying for each other? Just think about that. The Apostle Paul, when he begins his letter to the Ephesian church, he begins, as we've studied the last three weeks, with sort of an extended um, uh, sort of call for us to rejoice over our salvation. In the opening 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, he tells us about what it means to be in Christ and how it is that we become in Christ. He talks in those opening 14 verses about what it means to be a redeemed people. Now, this morning, as we come to verse 15 to 23 that Alex read for us just a few moments ago, he shifts gears a little bit. Instead of talking about what it means to be in Christ, he begins talking about what it means to be in community. And instead of just talking about what it means, kind of the how and why of our becoming a redeemed people, he begins to talk about how, as a redeemed people, we are to love each other. So he still continues in the same vein, but he sort of expands what he's talking about. Once he's done summarizing the various components of our salvation, Paul moves on to share with this group of believers at Ephesus how it is that he prays for them. He tells them how he talks to God about them. And in these nine verses that we're going to look at over the next two weeks, we're going to discover that his prayers for them contain two primary ingredients. The first is thanksgiving. He tells them that when I pray for you, the thing I start with is thanksgiving. And he thanks God for the spiritual blessings God has given to them. He thanks God for all that he's doing in them and all that he's doing through them. And then he tells them that in addition to giving thanks to God for them, the second part of his prayers for them is that he has requests for them. He has petitions for them. He asks God to give them a full grasp of all the blessings that they've received by being in Christ. He asked God to give them a full awareness of all that they have in Christ. So the question that we want to ask ourselves this morning as we study these verses is based upon the example of the Apostle Paul and what he shares with us in these nine verses, what do we learn from his example about how we should pray for each other? 
What should be our takeaways from his example to us about how we should pray for each other? Or we could simply put it this way. What do we learn from Paul's example about my prayers for you and your prayers for me? How should those prayers be shaped by what it is that Paul tells us? Well, the very first thing we learn from Paul's example in verses 15 to 23, as we said a moment ago, that Paul begins with thanksgiving. He first of all thanks God for what God is doing in and through these believers. He thanks God for what he is doing in and through these other believers. Look with me at verse 15. He simply says this, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and because I've heard of your love to all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So as, the Paul, as Paul continues in his letter, this group of believers that uh, he loved very dearly, he tells these believers that he prays for them all the time. He says, I never cease praying for you, but I just don't sort of randomly pray for you. I just don't sort of thoughtlessly pray for you. I just don't sort of say, well, you know, God bless those folks at Ephesus. No, my prayers are very specific for you. Specifically, I give thanks for you. And he gives two reasons why it is that he gives thanks for them. He says, the number one reason I give thanks for you is because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. And he says, the second reason I give thanks for you is because I've heard about your love toward all the saints. Now, we need to look at a little history here. Um, the Apostle Paul first came to the city of Ephesus on his second missionary trip. He had a team with him. He wasn't alone by himself. Timothy was with him. Silas was with him. Probably some others were with him. But they first arrived in Ephesus on this second missionary trip, and Paul probably spent about two or three months in Ephesus on that first trip. And then he departed from there, and he left behind Timothy and Silas to kind of help out as this, this young church was just sort of being started, was just kind of being planted. Paul then returned to the city of Ephesus on his third missionary trip. And this time, instead of just spending a couple of months, he spent three years in the city of Ephesus. In fact, this church at Ephesus sort of became the, uh, uh, the, the launch point, the centerpiece for a whole bunch of churches that could sort of spread across Asia Minor. There's some of the churches that we read about in the opening couple of chapters of the book of Revelation. When John addresses part of his letter to the churches of Asia, those churches were kind of birthed out of the church at Ephesus. So Paul spent three years there on his third missionary trip. But now when he writes his letter to them, he has been gone for almost four years. He has not seen them personally in almost four years. After he left, after that third missionary trip in the three years that he spent there, he traveled eventually back to Jerusalem. He was arrested in Jerusalem. He was incarcerated in, in Caesarea for a year and a half. Then he appealed his case to Rome, and he, was tra he traveled by ship to Rome, and now he's been incarcerated in Rome for upwards of two years. So it's been at least three years, possibly as much as four years since he has seen these people, and most of the time he has not been a free man. He has been an incarcerated man. But yet, in spite of the fact that he's been incarcerated, he has heard some things about these believers. He's heard from various sources some very important things about this local church body that cause him to continually give thanks when he prays for them. And in sharing those things with us, he gives us an example of how we should be praying for our fellow believers. So what should we thank God for? Well, two things. Number one, we should thank God for their faith in Christ. When you pray for me and when I pray for you, we should 
thank God for each other's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think when he thanks God for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's kind of talking about two different aspects of their faith. He's certainly talking about their saving faith. So Paul gives thanks for their saving faith. Now, he had been there when a number of them had come to saving faith in Christ. I mean, he was there for two or three months the first time, there for three years the second time. So he had personally been there when a number of them had come to faith in Christ, but he's been gone now for four years. So a lot more people had come to faith in Christ. And he'd heard about the other people that had come to faith in Christ. He'd heard about these new churches that were planted across Asia. And he's thrilled with the news of that. And so he says, when I remember you in my prayers, and I remember you unceasingly in my prayers, and I give thanks for you in my prayers, in part, it's because of your faith in Christ. But I think it wasn't just for their saving faith. I think he also gave thanks for their practical faith. Because while incarcerated in Caesarea and incarcerated in Rome, he heard about how they were living out their faith. He was concerned, as you can well imagine he'd be concerned, having been a part of the birth of that church and having spent so much of his ministry there in Ephesus with that church. He was, he was rejoicing and thankful when he heard about how their faith was growing, how they were living out and practicing their faith. These believers at Ephesus, they had not only trusted in Christ for salvation, but they were also living out that faith in Christ in the realities of everyday life. They were living out their faith through all the stuff of life, and Paul thanks God for that. And I think in thanking God for that, he's giving us a model for how we should thank God for that. When we pray for each other, we ought to be thankful for the saving faith that God has given to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but we also ought to be thankful for how they're living out how we're fleshing out that faith in Jesus Christ in all of the realities of life. A couple of examples of that. Let's think of, a, for a moment in our heads, let's think of a, a brother or sister in Christ that is kind of going through a, a difficult health time right now. Maybe they're going through a health crisis. Maybe their health has just been in the tank for kind of a long time. And as we've been uh, kind of rubbing up against them in church and, and in small group and in other ways, and we've watched them go through all of that, and they're, they're not only uh, have saving faith, but they're authentically trying to live out their faith. They're trying to uh, abide in Christ through all those difficult situations that they're experiencing. And I think, how should I pray for them? Well, I need to pray for thanksgiving for them. Because not only has Christ saved them, not only do they have that saving faith, but in the middle of a very difficult set of circumstances, they're authentically walking out their faith, not saying that it's easy every day, not saying that it's a bed of roses or a walk in the park. It's difficult. But yet in spite of that, they are abiding in Christ and seeking to live out their faith in Christ. So when I pray for them, in part, I ought to be thanking God for that faith that they have in Christ, their saving faith, as well as their practical faith. Or let's think of another example. Let's say there's somebody that we know, maybe here in church this morning, or maybe somebody outside of this church, but they're a brother or sister in Christ, and we know that they're just being, kind of been going through kind of a financial crisis, maybe with things going on in the economy, uh, maybe there's been some additional expenses with the car or at home, maybe the job situation has been a little bit up in the air, and it seems like for them for the last few months that there's been more month than there's been money. And so they've been kind of wrestling with that and kind of struggling through that. But in the midst of that financial upheaval in their life, we've watched them authentically live out their faith. We've watched them sort of abide in Christ and abide in their faith, abide in their trust. Again, not saying it's always been easy, 
Not saying that every day has been giddy or anything like that. No, there have been hard days and difficult days, but yet in spite of all that, they're authentically living out their faith. So how do I pray for them? Well, Paul would tell us by his example that at least in part, I need to thank God. I need to thank God for their saving faith. I need to thank God that in the midst of difficult financial situations or difficult health situations, they're practicing their faith. They're fleshing it out. They're abiding in Christ. They're authentic in their faith. And Paul says we should thank God for that. As he thinks about these Ephesian believers, he says, I have heard about your faith in Christ. And when I pray for you, I pray unceasingly. And my prayers are filled with thanksgiving for you because of your faith in Christ. Or we just kind of look around us and sometimes even in our own homes and we see even our kids, you know, even as young as they are, and we watch them and, you know, they've come to faith in Christ and they're trying to live out their faith at school and that's not always an easy thing to do, even, even as a little kid, right? Or, or we look around us and we see uh, young adults trying to live out their faith in, in the midst of maybe uh, educational situations or other things like that where it's not always easy to live out their faith. Or we see uh, young people, young couples, others just being salt and light in their jobs, just seeking to be salt and light in their schools or salt and light in their communities. And we see them not only have saving faith, but living out their faith. And we say, our, what, should our, what should my prayers for them look like? Well, our prayers for them ought to be filled with thanksgiving. It's not easy to be salt and light at work. Not easy to be salt and light at school. Not easy to be salt and light in the community. But when we see brothers and sisters in Christ living out that salt and light in places where it's not easy, and we think, how should I pray for them? Paul would tell us here, he would give us the example that we need to pray with thanksgiving because of that faith that they have. So let's be people who thank God daily for believers around us who through all the realities of life flesh out their saving faith in authentic and abiding practical faith. Let's be a people who identify that and thank God for that. Paul is telling us here that this is a quality, this is a characteristic of what it means to be in community. This is how we live out in community. This is how we ought to pray for each other in our small groups. This, we're in a, a ladies' Bible study or a men's Bible study or something like that, or maybe we're in a youth Bible study or something like that, and so we pray for each other. They think, how do we do that? What should be involved in that? Well, Paul's saying, here's what should be involved in that. Here's what we should include in that. Here's what we should incorporate in that. So let's learn from his example and thank God for each other's faith. Thank God for each other's faith. But he doesn't end there. There's a second thing that he thanks God for. He thanks God for their love for each other. Look again at verse 15. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and because I have heard of your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you when I'm remembering you in my prayers. You notice Paul says that they loved all the saints. Now, folks, who, who, who are the saints? Well, if, you, if we go back in our Bibles to the first verse of this chapter, he says in verse 1, he opens the letter with this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. So who are the saints? The saints are the followers of Christ at the church at Ephesus, those that have been set apart from sin and set apart to God. And so he says, I am thankful to God for you because you have love for all the saints. They loved all the fellow believers that they had in their local church. Now, folks, um, let's be honest. That is not always an easy thing to do, is it? 
I mean, I, I don't know about you. I'd, I'd love to stand up here and testify this morning that I just have a real easy time loving everybody. But you know better than that, right? And if you were to say that, we'd all know better than that, right? That's not an easy thing to do. In fact, I heard someone say one time in referring to a fellow believer in their church, they simply said, well, I love them in the Lord. And I thought about that. Can, can you help me with that a little bit? Because I've watched you, and I, trust me, there's not a lot of personal affection there, you know? And I'm watching you, and, and there's not a lot of commitment to meeting their needs. So what is that? Some kind of spiritualized kind of love just because they're a believer? That's not genuine love. If I'm going to say that I love somebody in the Lord, then if I truly love that believer, to love them in the Lord is to love them like the Lord loves them. And how does the Lord love us? He loves us in spite of ourselves, right? He loves us in spite of all of our, our shortcomings and all of our issues. little illustration of that. Uh, um, uh, Oliver Cromwell was uh, one of the prime ministers of the British Empire back in the 1600s. Um, and, and no, Wes, I was not alive then. Um, though Wes is always poking fun at me for being old. Um, but Oliver Cromwell was uh, one of the prime ministers in the British Empire back in the 1600s. And it was the tradition um, that uh, all of the prime ministers would get their portraits painted. And they would hang in, in I don't know if it was the residence of the prime minister in, in some place of Buckingham Palace or something like that. And so he had noticed during the years that he was prime minister, because he had looked at other portraits of previous prime ministers, he noticed that in their portraits that every single hair was in place. He noticed that there were no frown lines, no wrinkles, no nose hairs, right? Nothing that was flawed, nothing at all. So when it came time for him to get his portrait painted, he didn't want it done. Because he said that this is crazy, this is ridiculous, this isn't real, this isn't true. And so they insisted on him getting his portrait painted. And so when he finally sat down to get his portrait painted, he said to the artist that was going to paint his portrait, I'll allow you to paint me under one condition, and that is that you paint me warts and all. And they did. They did paint him warts and all. And I share that with you because I'm so thankful that God loves me warts and all. He calls us to love each other, warts and all. These believers at Ephesus loved all their fellow believers in their church. The ones that they disagreed with, they loved. The ones who were hard to love, they loved. The ones that were struggling, they loved. The ones that were wandering, they loved. You see, part of being a redeemed family who loves others is just that. It's loving each other within our church, warts and all. Warts and all. And I want us to notice, too, not only the word all, but I want us to notice the word love. Now, as you can well imagine, and you've heard this before, this is a translation of, of the Greek word agape. In the, uh, the, the common Greek of, of the time of Christ and the time of the, the writers of the New Testament, there were at least three different words that were, that were used to translate love or to, to speak of love. And uh, again, you've probably heard this before, but one of them was eros, that was more of a, a romantic kind of sexual, erotic kind of love. Another one was uh, phileo. That was more of a, a bro love, kind of a brotherly love, kind of a Philadelphia kind of love. And then there was this third word, agape. But was, what was interesting, what is interesting, those that have studied the written literature of the day, that first century written literature of, 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 of Greek and, and Roman uh, culture, they discovered that the word eros is used all the time in the literature. The word phileo is used all the time in the literature. 
but the word agape is almost never used in the literature. So even though this was a word in their Greek vocabulary, it was not a word that they normally used. It was not a word that they thought of. They thought about eros, they thought about phileo, but never used this word. So we come to the New Testament, and it's like God took this word that he knew was in their vocabulary, but rarely used, and he filled it with new meaning. And suddenly the gospel writers and the epistle writers, they use this word over and over again, and they fill it full of meaning. And the meaning that they fill it with is this, that agape love is a thoughtful love. It's a volitional love. It's a purposeful love that wills to live, to love even the unlovely. It's a love that uniquely was used to define and describe the love of God for us. The believers in the local church at Ephesus, Paul says, you're living out that kind of love. I mean, you recall the, that when Jesus was asked, you know, how to summarize all the laws and all the commandments of the Old Testament, he basically said this, well, it comes down to two things, right? Loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving my neighbor as myself. But then in John 13, he shared with his followers, he said, I've got an additional commandment. I've got a new one I'm going to add to the list, a third one. And in John 13, 34, and 35, here's what Jesus said. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you agape love one another, just as I have agape loved you. You also do agape love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have agape love for one another. So agape love is defined as a characteristic or a character quality of selfless sacrifice. It's a, it's a type of love that results in genuine acts of patience and kindness. When Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient and love is kind, agape love fleshes out kindness. It lives out patience. Uh, agape love is a love that, that bears all things, and that word bear doesn't mean to expose. It means to hold or to carry so agape love carries our brother and sister in Christ at times when they need to be carried. Agape love is a believe-all-things kind of love. It's a hope-all-things kind of love. It's an endure-all-things kind of love. And that's the kind of love that these folks at Ephesus, these believers at Ephesus, were modeling. It wasn't a love based upon how they felt about each other in their church. It wasn't a love based upon how attractive they were to each other or how agreeable they were with each other at any given moment. No, it was agape love. It was Christ-like love. And he says, man, when I pray for you, and I pray for you all the time, the first thing that comes to mind is how thankful I am for you. I am thankful for your faith in Christ, both the saving aspect of that as well as the practical outworking aspect of that. But I also thank God for the love you have for all the saints. I thank God that you're practicing that new commandment. So genuine faith, Paul's telling us that genuine faith and genuine love go together. Because as Christ draws we sinners to himself in faith, he draws we sinners to each other in love. I mean, just think of it as, um, as spokes on a bicycle wheel, right? And as those spokes move closer and closer to the hub, they move closer and closer to each other. And as we move closer and closer to Christ in saving faith and in practical faith, what happens? We move closer and closer to each other in, in love, in practical love, in real kind of love. So this is part of the answer to our question, how we should pray for each other. It's part of how we as a redeemed family love each other. It's part of how we live in community. And it needs to be part of my prayers for you and part of your prayers for me. This is how we are to pray for each other. 
So Paul begins, as he describes to the Ephesian church how he prays for them, he begins by talking to them about his thanksgiving for them. But he doesn't end there. That's not the only thing that's contained within his prayers. Because he goes on in verse 17 through the rest of this this paragraph to say that, secondly, I ask God to give other believers, so he's teaching us, sharing with us, that we should ask God to give other believers a full grasp of all he's given to them. So he starts with thanksgiving, and then he moves to petition. And he models for us that when we have petitions on behalf of a brother or sister in Christ, that we should ask God to give that other believer a full grasp of all he or she has in Christ, all that God has given to them. Look again at the end of verse 16, going into verse 17. He says, I'm remembering you in my prayers. And so we naturally ask the question, well, what exactly are you remembering? And he says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. He goes on in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that, here's the second thing he asked for, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So his petitions break down into two primary requests. We don't have time this morning to look at both of those, so we're just going to look at one of them. And then, Lord willing, we'll look at the second one next week. But his first petition for them is simply this, Father, help them to fully know Christ. Father, help them to fully know Christ. Look at verse 16 again, end of the verse. I'm remembering you in my prayers, he says, and here's what I'm praying for. Here's what I'm asking for, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, here's my request, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, there's, there's a number of really important words in verse 17, all right? So we're going get, to get a little technical here for a minute, but I think it's important that we understand exactly what Paul is asking for, because if I don't understand what Paul's asking for, then how am I going to understand what I'm supposed to be asking for in terms of my brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So the first one we want to mention is the word spirit. He says, may we give you a spirit of, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. The word spirit here is a translation of the Greek word pneuma. It's a word that we're kind of familiar with, Right? We think of some of you work with pneumatic tools, right? A pneumatic tool is an air tool. And the word pneumonia is the word, or pneuma is the word for air or the word for breath. Uh, we're accustomed to using the word pneumonia, right? You may have a friend right now that has pneumonia. And you know that with pneumonia, you can't breathe well, right? Somehow the oxygen that you breathe in doesn't get to all those little things in your lungs into your bloodstream, right? So there's a problem with the breathing, a problem. I know it's not good medical term. I'm sorry. I don't know what those things are called. You can't, no good athlete, no good dancing. I wouldn't be a good doctor. Um, uh, uh, you know, that's why we retired. Um, but uh, um, so he's, he's using this word pneuma in terms of breath or in terms of air, just like we would use pneumatic or, or, or pneumonia. And he's saying that, God, I want through the working of your Holy Spirit that you would breathe into them, that you would push air into their spiritual hearts and their spiritual lives. I want them to have a fullness of godly wisdom, a fullness of godly revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, again, important words here. The word revelation. It's a word that basically refers to a body of knowledge, refers to a a set of facts, a set of, of information. The word wisdom communicates the idea of how do I use that body of facts? 
How do I apply that body of facts to my life? And the third thing that we note here is this word knowledge. Now, again, in the original language of the New Testament, normally the word knowledge is the word gnosis. Here he attacks a preposition to it, epi, epigenosis. The word epi means deep or full or complete. So he's saying, God, or he's saying to the Ephesian believers, when I pray for you, the thing I ask God first and foremost for you is that you would have this, this, this sort of um, understanding of the truths about Jesus Christ and how to apply those in your life. I want you to have a full knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what he's asking for. So Paul wants his fellow believers who are full of faith and full of love, that's verse 15 and verse 16, to grow fuller in their personal knowledge of Christ and how to apply that knowledge. So he says, when I pray for you, when I think about the things that are on my heart that I ask God for on your behalf, the thing that is the top of my list is that you have this full, deep knowledge of Jesus Christ. I don't just want you to have the facts about Jesus Christ. I want you to have the wisdom for how I apply, how you apply those facts to your life. So again, let's, let's, kind of, let's kind of think about that for just a moment, okay, in terms of practical terms. Let's say there's a, a young person in our church, and maybe they're, um, maybe they're a, 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 a junior in high school, maybe even a senior in high school, and they're kind of going through a, a bit of uncertainty about their future right now. Not unusual, right? Um, they're not sure, like, what's the next step? Um, do I go on for further education? And, and if so, where, where do I go? Um, what should I pursue with further education? Where should I pursue that further education? What would that look like? Kind of uncertain about that. Or maybe they're thinking, well, maybe I need to get into some kind of co-op program where I'm getting some education, but I'm also getting some job training. Maybe I'm even getting paid for it. Maybe that's the direction I should go. Just a little uncertain about that. Or, or they're thinking, maybe I should just take a, a year or two off. Maybe I could, I could give a year or two of my life to the Lord and, and serve in some capacity, in some ministry, in this sort of intervening time before the end of high school and kind of getting on with some of my adult life going forward. So maybe I could do that. Maybe I could join the military, you know, and, and earn some money and set aside some money so I get education down the road. And so they're going through all this kind of uncertainty and not quite sure what direction we should go. And we think about that and we think, well, from Paul's example... What is Paul telling us in terms of how we should pray for them? Well, he's telling us that we should pray that they would be given a fuller knowledge of Christ, both in terms of information and wisdom. So in praying for that young person, maybe one of the things I'm praying for them is this. I want them to come to grips with Christ as their good shepherd. A good shepherd directs his sheep. A good shepherd uh, leads his sheep to uh, quiet pastures and, and still waters and so I want this young person to come to the place, even though they're a little uncertain about their future and a little uncertain about their direction, that Christ is their good shepherd. He's got a rod and staff that, that, sh that directs them and moves them, and he promises to meet their needs, and he promises to guide them to those good places. So I want them to not only know Christ as their good shepherd in terms of the, of the facts of what a good shepherd does, but I want them to be able to flesh that out in their lives and, and own that truth about Jesus Christ, right? Or maybe in this season of Advent, you know, what I'm going to pray for them is I want them to come to see Christ as their wonderful counselor. I mean, they need some wisdom, right? They're not sure what direction to go. Not sure what the next step is, right? Not sure what the next phase is in their life. Is it education? Is it military? Is it serving the Lord? Is it some combination of all of those? Is it something totally different that they haven't even thought of? They need a good counselor, a wonderful counselor. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 the Word of God says this, Oh, the depth 
of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. In James chapter 1, verse 5, the Bible says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So how do we pray for that young person that's kind of in that place of uncertainty? We've probably all been there, right? I mean, we've all lived through that phase of our life. I'm going to pray that they would be impressed with the fact that Christ is their wonderful counselor. So he's the one they can go to for wisdom. He's the one they can go to for direction and for help. They can go to him and ask for that wisdom because he promises to give it liberally. He promises that his wisdom is inscrutable. It's so deep. It's so wonderful. It's so amazing. So Paul would tell us, how do we pray for them? Well, I pray that they would have a full knowledge of Jesus Christ, not only in information about who Christ is, but in how to live that out and apply that to their life, to their specific situation that they're living in. Let me give you another illustration. Um, I have a friend by the name of Don, and uh, his wife's name is Becky. Found out just about uh, two weeks ago, maybe, maybe three weeks ago, that uh, Don has terminal cancer. Found out through a mutual friend. And uh, so uh, um, I, I gave Don a call on, on Monday of this past week, and I just said, hey, man, I, I, I've heard the news, you know, about what's going on. And uh, he said, yeah. He said, actually, we just found out about two months ago. He was uh, at his doctor's off at, at, at his doctor's in early October just getting a normal physical, right? Annual physical. He was just that kind of guy that got a regular annual physical. physical, And uh, um, did all of his lab work ahead of time. All the lab work came back great. Physical went great. Doctor said, you know, you're good to go. You're fit as can be. Everything's wonderful. And, you know, as, as physicians sometimes do, especially when you're getting kind of an annual wellness kind of thing or fitness or a physical kind of thing, the doctor said to him, said, is there anything else you want to share with me? I'm not seeing anything. Nothing showed up in the lab work, lab work but is there, is there anything going on? And Don said to his doctor, he said, well, I've been feeling this little bit of heaviness in my chest. Um, it's not, it doesn't feel like I have some congestion. I'm not coughing or, or hacking up stuff or, or I can't breathe. I just feel this sort of irritation, kind of discomfort, kind of heaviness in my chest. And so his, his uh, primary physician looked at him and said, well, you know, we ought to get that checked out. So he sent him for a chest x-ray. Chest x-ray came back and it showed some concerning things. So he said, Don, I want you to, want you to get a, a, a deeper, more thorough scan of your lungs. So he went in and had that scan done, and sure enough, it showed that he has cancer in all four lobes of his lungs. They did a biopsy of the cancer. It's stage four, very aggressive cancer. They did a biopsy of the lymph nodes there in his lungs. It showed that there were cancer cells in the lymph nodes. They did a further scan of the rest of his abdomen area. The cancer's in his bladder. It's in one of his kidneys. It's in his liver. Had breakfast with Don on Thursday, along with a couple of other guys who were kind of friends. Don's 78 years old, but uh, been a, an encouraging, great guy. And uh, kind of said, Don, what's up? He said, well, we've talked it over, and the doctor says, the kind of the oncologist, they've met with an oncologist. The oncologist said it's the type of cancer that we really don't have a lot of good choices here, don't have a lot of good directions here. We could try radiation. Maybe we could shrink things a little bit, but because it's in so many places, I don't really think that's going to be effective. He said that the chemotherapies that we have to medically treat things, I'll be honest with you, they've proven to be not very helpful with this type of cancer, as aggressive as it is and all of that. So he and Becky, they just decided that they're not going to pursue either chemo or radiation. Doctor told him, you probably have four to six months. Um, so uh, thinking about Don as we talked and thinking about Don as we had breakfast, I'm thinking about 
how, 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 do, how do we pray for Dolly? And I'm thinking, as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking about this sermon, and I'm thinking about what Paul says, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I think the way to pray for Don, at least in part, is pray that he'd come to really understand that Christ is his healer, his, his great physician, and that when he cries out to God or when we cry out to God, that God would heal him, and we're praying for that, that God will answer those prayers. God will heal him. It may be in a physical healing and lengthier physical life on earth, or it may be in that ultimate healing eternally in heaven. But Christ will answer those requests. God will answer those requests. And I want Don to, 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 to sense that in his heart, that, that Christ is his healer, and to really own that in the circumstances that he's going through. Or again, to kind of tie it into Advent and, 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 and what, we, we, what we've talked about, I want Don to see Christ as his mighty God. A couple of weeks ago when, when Wes spoke of this in our, our Advent celebration that we're doing here, he, he read from Mark chapter 4, verse 37 to 41. You know the passage. It's talking about Jesus out on the Sea of Galilee and the storm and all that stuff. And let me just read a couple of verses. It says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, and so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care? that we are perishing. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why, why are you afraid? Uh, have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And I was thinking about that in terms of Don. I'm thinking he's in this moment in his life where the Kind of the wind and the waves are kind of crashing over, and, and what is going to happen here? And, and, and life, the brevity of life, the uncertainty of life is kind of crashing in upon them. And I'm thinking, I want him to know Jesus as, as mighty God, that in spite of the crashing waves, in spite of the, the circumstances that they're facing, that God will be the one that can give calmness to the storm and calmness to the wind and calmness to the waves. Why, why do we pray that way? We pray that way because Paul says, when I pray for you Ephesian believers, I'm praying you have this full knowledge of Christ, not only in terms of who Christ is, but how do I apply that knowledge to the real life circumstances of my life? Now, again, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean whether it's the young person that's facing uncertainty or whether it's Don that's facing terminal cancer, it doesn't mean we don't help them doesn't mean we don't serve them. doesn't mean we don't love them. But we're talking today, how do I pray for them? And Paul is trying to give us some insight, trying to give us an example of exactly how it is that we should pray for them. Paul says, well, when I pray for you Ephesian believers, I thank God. I thank God for all that he's doing in and through you. I thank God for your faith in Christ. I thank God for the love you have for each other. And then when I ask God for things, I ask God. It would give you a full grasp of all that you have in Christ. I pray, God, help them to fully know Jesus Christ, not only in terms of knowledge, but also in terms of wisdom. So we're talking about praying for each other, right? Kind of thinking like, you know, what's a, what's a good way to end a message on praying for each other? Well, I'm not a rocket scientist either, but it seems pretty clear that we ought to end a sermon about praying for each other by praying for each other, right? Right? We're not to be just hearers of the word, right? We're supposed to be doers of the word. So if you, if you came in this morning and you picked up uh, the, little, uh, the little handout uh, with the fill-in-the-blanky things, on the back side of that, what we've tried to do is to summarize on the top half of that back side, summarize what Paul prayed. Let me just read through that as the worship team comes. 
He simply prays, Father, this is, this is using Paul, Paul's, what we've learned from Paul as a model. What are my prayers for you? Father, I want to thank you for what you're doing in the life of my brother or my sister in Christ. I thank you, Father, for their faith in Christ, which has saved them and that sees them through each day. I thank you for the ways in which their faith has been a testimony and encouragement to me and to others. I thank you for the love they have for all believers, even though at times we can be pretty unlovable. Father, I ask that you would give them a full grasp of all their spiritual blessings that they've received in Christ. Help them to know Christ fully and deeply. Give them a knowledge of Jesus that gives them the truth they need to get through whatever life brings. I'm not sure if those are the perfect words that sort of mimic what Paul is saying to us, but I think it's important that we take what we've understood today from Paul's example and do it. So I'm going to ask everybody if we would just bow our heads. Close our eyes. I want you to picture in your head right now maybe one or two people sitting around you this morning. Or maybe through this sermon today, God has just put somebody that's not even here today on your heart than that person. But maybe it's the person you're left, maybe the person you're right. You say, Father, I, I want to remember them regularly in my prayers, and I want to think through my prayers for them. I want to be just like I'd be if I was meeting with the governor or meeting with the mayor or meeting with the superintendent. Now I'm meeting with you, and these are people around me that I care about. I want to be thoughtful in how I pray for them. So let's just take a few moments of silent personal prayer and pick out that one or two people that are next to you, in front of you, behind you, or that other person that God's impressed upon your heart this morning. And let's just, using what we've learned from Paul today as a model, pray for that one or two people. Let's just take a few moments to do that. Thank you again for joining us on the Harvest Lakeshore podcast. If you have found this content helpful, consider sharing the episode with friends or leave us a rating and review. For more info about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. You are loved. Thank you.